Welcome to the Cityscape Wire podcast. I'm your host, Tanisha, and in this month's podcast, I sat down with Sandra Woodall, passionate environmentalist, architect, urbanist, and design principal at Tangram Gulf. Sandra tells me about the Hospital of the Future, a game-changing concept that will see consultations and clinics move into the metaverse, reducing the need to visit physical spaces. She delves into how the best way to sustainably build is to not build at all. And we talk about how architects and designers are facing a paradigm shift in the way they are now designing, to the point that it has redefined the role of the architect and the built environment. Sandra, thank you so much for joining us for the Cityscape Wire podcast. We're really excited to have you here. Tanisha, thank you very much. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Well, you're a passionate environmentalist. Uh, I mean, you've had a great career in the architecture world. You're an urbanist. You're a researcher. You've been based in the Middle East for, I think, over 25 years now. And you're design director at uh, Tangram Gulf. And what's interesting to see is that your career really started for with the love of desert urbanism. So let's talk about that, especially those first few years in the region where apparently you lived in a traditional desert. How did it inspire you as an architect and really shape your work in the region? I, I was very, very privileged. I, I arrived in the UAE a very long time ago, well over 25 years ago, to be honest. <laughs> and and I, I was working in a city called Alain at that point of time, sort of early to mid-90s. Alain City was the fastest changing city in the Gulf. It was doing the incredible things. And my love really came from... The desert, the people, of course, the people that you meet and how, how they live their way of life. They still had a traditional way of life, even though they were moving into more modern buildings and facilities and they were getting corner shops and it was, life was getting easier in many terms, but they still lived with their animals. We had the goats on the streets, the chickens in the, <laughs> between the houses. And so that my, my, my love for, um, Desert urbanism was a love for the people, a love for Alain and the UAE, really. (laughs) Right, of course. Wow. Well, how did that sort of inspire your work moving forward for the next few decades? I, I, because I, I, I wanted to be embedded more and more in, in, in the community, in the society. There weren't as much of an influx as, let us say, foreign people in those days. So it was easier for me to talk to people who were from the traditional area and from, from the traditional uh, roles. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate that um, even though I had no Arabic when I arrived, lots of people spoke little bit snippets of English. And my family, my family here, of course, speak Arabic. So it was much easier for me, the communication and getting to know the people, their way of lives and, and how, how they'd grown up, the changes they'd seen in their lifetimes from being small with their grandparents. That really embedded in me a sense of belonging and a pride of place and the change that had occurred. And I didn't want to just move in and say, oh, no, you should be doing it this way. This is how we do it. Um, so so it, it was a, an understanding of who they are, what they need, how they need it and how they think and, and the, the passion for moving forward and to doing that at the right, uh, in the right way, not just imposing the ideas of others, but adapting ideas and, and practices and, and making it work for them and the place in which they called home. And so did I at that point. You know. 
That's very interesting because it's such a far cry from just, I suppose, where the UAE is right now to what you witnessed, that really traditional Arab design that you saw back then or that you incorporated as well. Yeah, well, I was living in, um, when, when, when you saw advertisements for um, villas and apartments, you would see advertisements for the villas and it would be Arab style. And so you knew it wasn't a modern European style villa that, that had been imposed on the way of life. It, it was the way they traditionally, you walk into the spaces that were majlis, you would sit on the floor. I would sit on the floor uh, in the majlis and, and the, there would be bedrooms, outdoor kitchens, outdoor facilities that were formed within the four walls, which was the villa site. But they were living all the way around the edge of the walls and congregating centrally. That was the lungs of the place. They, they would be able to breathe in the center open area, which is kind of the opposite of a European, uh, European home. You build the house in the middle of your plot and you put your garden around it. So it <laughs> oh, That's interesting. Um, well, you're a massive proponent of climate response design. I imagine it really came from a place of where you first saw it when you first started in the UAE. Can you tell us more about this, what it means, and also how, how important it is? The key thing about um, climate responsive design and, and sustainable design is effectively it's the vernacular architecture. It's using passive design principles of the place and of the area and of the way people live and putting that together in terms of the built environment and how we connect each other, effectively designing for community and connecting people to places and people to people within that place. So we look at traditionally there were the uh, very narrow alleyways, the seekers between buildings, which would uh, people would walk through to get from one part of the community to the other. These would bring shading onto the walkways and allow it to be walkable in, in times of the year when uh, Typically, we would now just jump in our car and, and drive. A, we, we do drive across the road these days in our cars, don't we? <laughs> so there's no walking involved. So because we're not shaded at all with the way that modern metropolises have, 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 have grown. So there's that. Then there's the, the way they had dense, thick walls, which were created thermal mass. So there wasn't floor-to-ceiling windows that didn't exist. It was small openings, protect them from the sun, protect from the glare, protect from the heat in gain into the insides of the building, making the, the, the environment cooler inside and more tolerable for people to live there. And as I said, you group around a courtyard within the housing complex, you group around the baharat, which is the community space, so people would congregate in the community space and all these seekers in between the villas would connect people from the community space to their villas, connect to important social infrastructure, the mosques, the schools, the shops and, and places like that. So people could walk around the neighbourhood. You would create neighbourhoods, not just the building or housing development. So that is the traditional desert urbanism. And we can apply that today. We can do that in modern materials. We certainly can. Are we seeing it being done? Yes, definitely. We're seeing um, in, in, in some areas, if, if, for example, if you're on Sheikh Zai Road, if you look near the World Trade Center, uh, just behind the, the, the Gate Village and such, it's walkable. 
you can easily get from one one place to the next. So that, that that's been done very well urbanly. And I think the key is today we live at a different scale than what we did in the past. So generations ago, didn't live in high-rise buildings. There wasn't that population. There wasn't the demand for people to live one apartment on top of the other. But we need that now. We need the scale. And so this shows that um, we can develop at scale what those traditional communities had and just replicate it for our new way of living, our modern way of living. Do you also employ these techniques if you're building outside of the UAE, especially in the region? Yes, I mean, we we work all across the Middle East and North Africa region. What we have to do is be very cognizant of wherever we're working as a very different environment, as a very different heritage and perhaps even cultural way of how people relate to each other. So we have to bear in mind whenever we work outside of UAE, we work in places where we've set up an office and we have local architects and engineers within the design teams designing for the places. We've worked in North Africa and one of the large schemes we did in, in North Africa had was on the Mediterranean. It was in Algeria. So we understood the way that the Kasbah had grown centuries before in the Ottoman times. The climate is very different uh, on the Mediterranean coast in Algeria from what we experience here in, in UAE. So there was a lot more rooftop living, a lot more open verandas and open terraces that we incorporated into the design to allow the winds to come, come into the building and come through. Uh, when, when we do that in the UAE, we, we, we design for the, the, um, the Baghdad and the Bajil, um, where the, the winds are brought through, uh, through the campuses and through the, through the developments that, that we do. But they don't necessarily, um, a wind coming from the desert would bring sand with it, which is harsh. Uh, and, and it would, here in UAE, it would be hot and, 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 and dry. On the Mediterranean, it brought in moisture, it would be cooler. So that bringing in the breeze would be used for different purposes than what it would be here in UAE. And we wouldn't need to protect and screen the orientation of the building to protect in some cases from what we do here. We protect from the desert winds rather than invite them in. So, so yes, you need to be very cognizant and understanding of what is hap- what, what is the environment in each context and design for the context you're in and uh, not, not just apply what you've done before because it, it worked 2,000 miles away somewhere else. <laughs> That's not going to happen. True climate response design. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Um, well, we have to talk about the hospital of the future. Can you tell listeners about the hospital of the future, because when I first heard this term, I didn't necessarily uh, put two and two together, but this is quite fascinating. Tell us about uh, about this. Yes, the, the hospital of the future. I think um, I we were asked by our client to, who had a, a large development program for, for new build hospitals and for the, the uh, renovation upgrading of hundreds of existing hospitals w- within the client's uh, network. Uh, and so... When I left the first meeting with the client, he said to me, Sandra, I want green architecture. So that's a very, very loaded (laughs) statement, of course. Uh, When it comes to sustainable design and green architecture, first and foremost is the most green architecture, do not build. (laughs) That's the the simplest uh, response. Uh, Do not not damage anything that that, that exists. Uh, This isn't isn't possible when when your client has, has to deliver 
40,000 new hospital beds in six years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we were looking at the building. How can we make a hospital building much more sustainable? A, a, a hospital would release more than two and a half times the carbon of any similar-sized commercial project into the environment uh, once it's open and operating. So the very key thing we had to do is how can we make healthcare more sustainable? And so we went back to the very, very first principle, do not build. So how can we offer healthcare at a reduced scale in the physical format but still provide the service that the patients need? So more patient-centric. Our client was very eager to push forward, building on the medtech trajectory that's taken uh, taken place over the last few years. It's it's probably sped ahead much much faster than prop tech. Uh, so the the technical developments and advancements in medical care is is, is outstripping anything we're seeing in construction and property. We all saw for example, during COVID, that nearly every one of us, if we wanted an appointment with our doctor, we went on our phone, we, 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 we took a, an online appointment. Yeah. Uh, so we were looking at how can we bring more and more online facilities to the patient and to the, the network provider uh, and build on what, what we've already started to use anyway as customers accessing our, our own health services. So we, we're looking to widen and expand the online proposals that the hospital can deliver. If we, we look at, for example, typically uh, patients who are managing chronic diseases, typically here they would go and see their doctor four times a year. They would have bloods taken, they would have consultation. If, if they're on prescription medicines, they would have repeat prescriptions of a slight um, modifications perhaps to, pres- to the prescription, dependent on what the doctor uh, discussed with the, the patient and found from the blood tests and other tests that they do um, typically. So we looked at how can we do this and not have people drive into the hospital and sit in a waiting space and the doctor service one patient every 40 minutes or so, whatever the provider uh, gives. And so we said, well, we can widen the, the online approach, the digital um, services. If we build clinics which are closer to the population, clinics which did not have the doctor in, so were not medical clinics, but were cyber clinics, so the clinics where the patient can go and have uninterrupted power supply, uninterrupted internet access to talk to the doctor online. Uh, these clinics could have small pathology services to take blood samples and other samples, etc., so that they could discuss with the doctor with that information already known. And those clinics could prescribe the medication and, and give it to the, the patient when they leave the clinic after the consultation with the doctor. A cyber clinic would be the same carbon footprint as a commercial building, two and a half times less than that of a, a, a hospital building. Because in hospital building, even if your, your, your interaction with your doctor isn't IN, doesn't have heavy carbon usage, you're in a department which has all these carbon connections going through it. It's already built to, to take this. So you're already occupying a space that is perhaps over-emitting carbon than what it needs to for, for, for the functions that's actually going on there. So we would reduce that. So cyber clinics could be provided in, in the, scattered around the country, perhaps in places where patients could find it easier to access. 
And many patients, of course, are already so familiar with using their telephones and using apps, etc., that they would just sit at home and, and use these facilities anyway. So they wouldn't even have to leave their home homes or they could stay in the office and take a, a, a lunch break to coincide with the consultation with the doctor. And so everyone would be reducing the transport carbon that they use, the time, the cost of course, to themselves of physically getting there and the cost which is lost to, to perhaps the working day uh, also. So it would, it would improve everything around the patient and it will enhance the health service um, uh, provider because it's instant. You can get instant access to your doctor from wherever you are in the world. Of course, perhaps a patient would need to see physically see the doctor for things that are outside of typical management facilities and would need to see the doctor perhaps they'd have a, a one-year appointment instead of a, a quarterly appointment to physically go and see the doctor. But if you do that, in that case, then you're reducing 75% of the provision of that physical space that's needed to take that one patient once a year instead of four times a year. Uh, so that was from the the typical patient management um, kind of approach for outpatients. Because of the progress of medtech, already doctors and, and, and clinicians, they use AI far more advanced ways than what we do in, in the construction industry. Uh, so they're already typically using advanced digital and advanced technologies for example, training for doctors can be done online. They can have simulation and training through AI, through the metaverse. Um, it's already being offered uh, in, in, by, by many, many providers, which means that if we build, for example, a digital twin, so we're already if we were to build a hospital building, we would have the basics of a digital twin. We would have the, the, the outline framework from, from the BIM models that we have. So a digital twin is, is then ensuring that any physical space that the doctors would typically train in would match the physical space if the, for when the doctor comes out of training mode and goes into patient-facing mode. So a lot more training could be done off-site, off the physical environment, and so less demand for physical space, and only when the, the space is needed to be used by the doctor and the patient uh, will the, the, the space be physically provided for and physically, um, physically built. There's so many other areas in, in Medca where AI is used constantly. And we, we, we said, how can we as designers build a building where AI is being constantly used day in, day out by the occupants? and not use AI ourselves to design that space. That, we're kind of a step behind, aren't we? If, if, if we're not even using it within our, 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 mod, our, our design model. So we started to use AI more and more. And now we have on our design teams, um, we, we, we've, we've developed uh, an, uh, an entire team dedicated to digital and advanced technologies. And we have architects, engineers sitting next to uh, people with skills. We, we have coders. We have people who, who use Python, people who use many, many different skills than what traditional architect and engineering construction professionals ever had. And they're supplementing our teams now so that we build not only physical, but we build in the metaverse also and create a hybrid environment that, that benefits us all.
Wow. So all of this is taking place in the metaverse, of, of course, that's a platform. And you're using AI in order to do that. So and as you said, only when there's a demand for physical space or for, say, a, a, a pa- patient who wants to get physical treatment, then a, a physical space would be provided for. Would that be provided for based on uh, just um, already built clinics in the patient's radius? Um, surgical, for example, so, surgery usually takes place in the central area where, where the specialists are available, the, the specialist equipment and the aftercare uh, and also the pre-education can be offered in one non-stop place. So I don't think we're ever going to get the point where we can have the very specialist hospitals being replicated at a smaller scale within the communities because there just isn't the manpower, there just isn't the the, the equipment cost, et cetera, et cetera. I do, we, we, we can't really devolve from that. Uh, but we only if we only keep it so we have the department and it's open nonstop, and the patient flow is nonstop, and and we we manage we we, we can manage the, um, the maximization of not only the space but the efficiency and the costs, uh, and and also maximize how we manage and reduce uh, the carbon the carbon footprint. Because hospitals, of course, it's not just about the carbon. Um, the, the hospitals use power 24-7, they use water 24-7, they, they, they emit not just carbon, they emit waste, waste emitted by hospitals, 6% of that waste is, is, is toxic, uh, 6% of, of the waste emitted is um, nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more dangerous to the environment than carbon dioxide. Uh, so the, the, by reducing the amount of physical built space that we, we provide by uh, reducing the amount of um, physical activity that has to happen there, uh, we're, we're reducing so much of the sustainable aspect of, of, um, of, of environmental conscious designs. This is Cityscape Wire. Now, this opens up a lot of questions for, uh, for the role of the architect. Um, I mean, how would you say that the role of the architect and what we know as the traditional built environment is changing based on this? I mean, you mentioned you have AI, uh, t- uh, AI uh, profession- uh, professionals, you have engineers and you have coders sitting in your team. Uh, how, how is this shifting for the architecture world? Um, we, we're, we're having to grow. We're having to be more open into how we look at what architecture is and what architecture will become. I think what we're conscious of is that if we sit back and let it all happen and then we're just given packages by software companies to use, uh, we're going to be given someone else's solution to the problems that that we see and we identify today. We need to be in the driving seat to drive the changes. So um, architects today, we need to understand more. What is AI? What is the metaverse? We're the ones best placed to understand our clients and our clients' needs. Our clients' needs are changing. They're going to be working in the metaverse, whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not. So we need to educate ourselves from now and start to shape how the construction industry will adapt to the new technology that's coming in. Because 
Otherwise, our clients will go somewhere else away from their architect to have their solutions created in the future. And we need to, to shape the types of softwares, et cetera, that we have, which can blend what we've done traditionally into what we need to do in the future. It's the unknown still, certainly. And everyone talks about the metaverse being 10, 15 years away from actually being in effect. But if you look at how long does it take to build a hospital, traditionally it takes 12 years to design and build a hospital. So we are not that far away. We need to make that leap now if the hospitals we deliver 12 years from now are fit for purpose. Effectively, our hospital is a hospital without walls because you're not creating one rectangular building and putting everything inside it. You're taking parts out of it and accessing them beyond the walls of the hospital that was the traditional model. Um, and, and when it comes to um, digital and advanced technologies as well, when we're building new hospitals, we, we can look to advancing the way we, 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 we do them away from the traditional construction, we can reduce waste, we can reduce costs, we can make it much more efficient by, by using much more um, modern methods of construction, more factory-based construction, which is uh, then delivered to site. We can take a frame which is created in a factory and build it on site and then take the, the components um, of the hospital and plug them into that frame on site. So much of risk that goes on on site is, is down to the fact that no two people will do the same thing the same way. Uh, and no, no one person necessarily does the same thing twice. So there's always efforts repeated on site and there's waste created on site that doesn't necessarily um, happen when you have a, a, a much more streamlined approach within the factory. So we can look at how we deliver our buildings, not just how we design and operate them. The tools are there now to help us change this. So let's get in there and, and, and use them, become more, more, more aware, understand better what we need and what's available and how to use it. We need to sort of retrain ourselves to do things differently. I mean, that's so interesting because that is a new definition of a hospital. Um, so what other institutions in the future, or actually happening right now, what other institutions are making the shift towards the metaverse? Yeah, it's the same. I mean, we're talking now, we're talking on the metaverse. So this is already basic parameters of the metaverse. We're already using it. So everybody's using it. For, for example, like I, I talk about training in, in, uh, in, in, in the medical field, but, but schools and universities, they can more and more of their activities can, can be online, uh, can, can be in the metaverse. To be with somebody, you don't physically have to be next to them anymore. Um, we've, 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 we've learned that over the last few years ourselves. The commerce aspect of the metaverse, the e-commerce, uh, e the buying and selling, so retail will move much, much more greater content into the metaverse. There's great changes being made in hospitality and, how, and, and also events and how people gather together in, in the metaverse. So we're already seeing it now. Um, what we're looking for is as the metaverse evolves and it develops into a much, much more immersive and interactive 
area that that people will will do more and more things because they'll be more they'll be more engaged in it anyway and and and, and it won't just be like looking at a a, a, a computer screen or, or a phone screen you can become more and more immersed in, in, in what will happen in the future we have to be conscious that we can, we we've only got certain parameters today that actually do work so we need to build on those and, and start introducing those into the way that we work and things that we do now so that as things develop in the future, we'll take the, those on board as they are happening. Well, are we seeing uh, a global embrace by architects towards this new um, definition of the built environment, towards moving towards the metaverse, especially considering with uh, uh, the demands when it comes to building sustainably? I think architects today are, are looking for anything that gives them greater control of, 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 of creating sustainable solutions. At the moment, they will take on board anything that they can see that works. Because we're still at the very, very early stages of understanding what the metaverse is, for many of us, it's just it's a, a a word that's recently been spoken about daily. Although it's it's been in existence for whatever thirty years or so, a generation or so. So you've got quite a lot of architects who've always done things this way, and they still see it as the unknown. And so they would have a, a steep learning curve to get into it. If you look at the younger generation, uh, and 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 I, I talk a lot with the younger generation who, who always. Wanting more, they want to grab it now. They want to push it now. They want to move forward now. So they've got the appetite because they're not having to unlearn what, what they've been doing for for for, for their previous career, earlier in their career. They don't have to unlearn that to relearn how we will move forwards. So um, so they're eager to grab hold now and push ahead with things. So the, the likes of climate tech, uh, more and more that we can develop digitally and and, and technologically. Uh, the easier it will become. Carbon counting, working out as uh, simulation models as part of your design process, etc., is is available now. And it's the younger people who are getting into it straight away because they didn't know that there was a period of time before when this didn't exist, and and, and it's they don't see it as new. They see it as it's available now. Let, let's get in and use it. Whereas someone with twenty years experience will think, oh. Oh dear, what do I do now? And can I get somebody else on the team to do it? Well, there's lots of the young the young people are eager to to getting there, and so so yeah, we're 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 at the transition point, and we I think we always will be. There'll be people who want to embrace the new, and there are people who want to hold on and hang on to the old. Uh, we're always going to have that in all all walks of life. So yeah, as an industry, we're changing now more than we've ever changed in the past. Projects are more complex now than they've ever been in the past. Everyone's waiting for tomorrow. What will come tomorrow? How can we use it? How will it make it easier to get things done and, and, and easier to manage what today we're still fear we're still in fear of? We don't we fear the unknown. That is true, but that's such a valid point about the new gen, a new generation of, of of architects and designers who are coming up. Because I asked you earlier about whether the role of the architect is changing when it comes to the built environment, but a new generation of architects would have already been well. I've been working in technology for so long. This is what I know as an architect. So that's really interesting that it, it has changed already that definition of an architect. Let's talk about your other projects in the Middle East that you're uh, working on at the moment. 
Are we only seeing the hospital of the future in the metaverse? Are you working on other projects that incorporate AI and uh, tech? I mean, we're architects and urbanists, so we're working at the urban scale. We're working at the much larger scale on building in city resilience into cities uh, in, in, in the Middle East. So protecting from, 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 from the impacts of threats and risks that may happen in the future so that the city and the, the community, the population can bounce back from, from threats, from, from hazards. We, we, we see constantly uh, in the news earthquakes, we see constantly in the news other natural disasters, the floods, etc. Um, we, we've, we, we've seen them here in the UAE early in this year in, in, in the Northern Emirates, the floods that occurred there. So, so we know that none of us are immune from natural disasters, etc. Um, uh, of course, the threats that are going on even more, much more closely now in the region than, than ever before. The threats across the last couple of years with the way that the world changes and, and the various parts of the world that are having under extreme difficulties and the populations. So the, the UAE is, is, is like no, no other. They, they are building in resilience into the cities so that we can withstand any threats and bounce back much, much quicker from anything that does occur. So, so that we can we can continue to recover and thrive after these the, these hazards occur. So, uh, building in city resilience that's a key part of sustainability, and it's one which governments are, are more now seeing the value in uh, than before. So, we're we're involved a lot in, in in that. So, it's city scale that we're working at now across across the region, uh, rather than one building. Yeah. Rather than, of course. <laughs> A, a macro approach, yes. Um, all right, perfect. So um, let's move on to rapid fire questions, just three very quick questions. So what would your advice be to young professionals, architecture professionals who are just entering the profession at the moment? Um, first of all, I say welcome. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I know that quite often people at that stage when, when, when they're just embarking on their careers, they're, they're worried usually around fitting in and not, not knowing as much as everybody else around them. But like we've just spoken about, they know different things. They bring different skills and different perspectives that is needed, is much needed. So um, I, I think when, when you're just joining the, um, the, the workforce and, 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 and getting to know your teammates, be confident that you have you have skills and knowledge to add to that team that you perhaps don't realize and, and you, you you will benefit the team as a whole the team will grow from them but also listen to your teammates see how they do things and absorb absorb what's going on around them uh, and be open be open to thinking things differently uh, and bouncing ideas off each other don't just walk in with your idea and stick to that and say this is the way it should be and that's my advice to uh, more established members of the team as well. Listen, listen to each other, bounce the ideas off. Um, because an idea that goes through, throughout the team, it grows. And it grows to bigger than any one individual idea would, would ever have started off at. So, uh, so yeah, there's place for you. You're welcome. Share your knowledge and take on board what others can offer you. Absolutely. Tell me, what keeps you motivated about your job or, and your career? 
I don't know, every day is different. So every day, once I've done something today, tomorrow I never have to do that ever again. <laughs> and, and so I, I get up every morning and I can't wait to start and get on and do the new things that day. Every day is new. And once you've done a certain point in one project, the next point is new and you've got to just tackle it and, and get on. And you know that because of the way that projects work, you're moving forwards, you're driving the project forward towards its solution, towards its end goal. And then once that's ended, you start a new project. And so you, you go through the, the process again. So every day is new and that's what drives me, getting up and doing something different every day. Great, every day is new, I like that. And finally, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received from a mentor, colleague, manager? Uh, when I was very young, when I was just starting um, my university, I, uh, I had a, a tutor who, was, uh, who became a great mentor to me. She had achieved so much in her lifetime and at a time when uh, technology was, was changing rapidly. Um, and, and her advice to me effectively, what she instilled in me is that um, I can achieve anything. She could achieve anything. She'd proved it. She worked in Manchester um, with the uh, National Computing Centre in the UK back in the 1960s. So she was in the very early days of the computer development uh, in, 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 the, in the world. So um, what she did was incredible. And she instilled in me, and I'm sure in many of us, anybody who knew her, that whatever we want to do, we're all capable of doing it and delivering it. So... Uh, that was the very first and, and probably the most important mentor I ever had. Anything can, I can do, I can achieve anything. That is great advice, actually, for anyone. <laughs> oh, amazing. Thank you so much, Sandra, for joining us. I uh, really appreciated it. And it was incredibly interesting to, uh, to see how things are changing uh, for the better uh, in the architecture and construction world. Thank you. Thank you, Tanisha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then tune in every month where we'll be speaking to inspiring women from all walks of life and at various stages of their careers, exploring their challenges and uncovering the secrets behind their success. Join us where we'll be breaking down barriers and bridging gaps in the world of real estate. This is Cityscape Wire.